Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. And uh, can I um, offer a warm particular welcome to those who are visiting? It's particularly great to have you with us. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis. And today we're particularly looking at chapters 16 to 17. I was struck um, coming back from Nigeria. I've done a number of trips now to Africa, um, but I was particularly struck in Nigeria in the place that I was at the uh, the number of places along the side of the road, sometimes painted on buildings, sometimes on walls, sometimes on great billboards of advertising, where different individuals or organisations are making great promises of being able to heal you of every kind of sickness and disease. Uh, some make great promises. I can heal you from AIDS, from cancer, from blindness. I've even seen someone who claims he can raise people from the dead. Uh, it's, a, it's a puzzling thing. Sometimes you just want to laugh at some of these um, advertisements because you know how ridiculous they are. Other times it makes you deeply sad because in this particular culture where there is a lot of vulnerability and a lot of sickness, it does seem that many people um, are being abused and led astray by these false doctors who make lots of promises but aren't able to deliver. I want you to consider the character of God, because when it comes to any person making a promise, a promise that is only as strong as the character of the person who makes that promise. I could make you all sorts of promises, but I may not be able to deliver on all of them. You see lots and lots of promises for being able to make people better in Africa, but often the doctors can't deliver on those promises. But what about God? Here's a question I'll put on the screen for you to reflect on. And maybe you can turn to the person next to you or reflect on this quietly yourself. Um, here's the question. Is there anything that God cannot do? I wonder what you make of that. And as you discuss that, some of you will uh, give a sort of resounding, of course not, God is all sovereign, all powerful. There's nothing that he cannot do. And at one level, you're right. But another level, it's not true, because there's actually a lot of things that God cannot do. Principally, God cannot be inconsistent with who he is. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read from the beginning of Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 1, and I'll just read the first three verses. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Christ Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. See, there's one thing that God cannot do. He cannot lie because God has to be consistent with his character. Now, why is that all really important? It matters because this is another passage all about promise. Uh, every time you read about Abraham in the Bible, think promise, because it was through Abraham that God's promises first came. But a promise is only ever as strong as the character of the person who makes that promise. And so we need to think about God who makes promises in this chapter, because he's a God we read in the book of Titus, does not lie. Just to remind us of the context, remember Abraham He's given a threefold promise from God. I will make you into a great nation, a people. I will give you a land and I will bless you. Um, people, land and blessing are three of the great promises that God made to Abraham. And we saw last week, didn't we, when Nathan was preaching, chapter 15, verse 1. God says something rather surprising to Abraham. He says, do not be afraid. 
And it's a bit of an odd thing to say because he said it back in chapter 12 to Abraham, take your wife Sarai and leave and go to the place where I am calling you to go. And of course, they have no idea where they're going. Uh, just to pick somebody, uh, it would be like me saying to Lyle Guthrie, um, Lyle, leave Oakley where you live with your wife Anne and go. And Lyle's like saying, well, where are we going? How long are we going for? How are we going to get there? Why are we going? There's all these questions. Not only is he asked in chapter 12 to leave and go, but he's given a great responsibility because he's told that through him would be a great nation. And then throw into the mix the fact that Abraham and his wife Sarai are very old and they're childless. And indeed, after God says to Abraham in 15 verse 1, don't be afraid, the very first thing he says, verse 2, is, but I'm childless. And then God takes Abraham up outside on a beautiful night, says, Abraham, look at the stars, count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. And then as we saw last week, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, chapter 15, verse 18. Now, it strikes me as we read this story that Abraham knew something of the God he served. Of course he did, because he was prepared to leave everything and follow. And yet, as you come to chapter 16, you have to wrestle with all the human emotion that Abraham and his wife were going through. Because they trusted in God, but they were struggling to trust in God. And I hope this will be a comfort to you and to me, because so often is that not true for us? We believe and trust in God but on the other hand, we struggle to believe and trust in God. Let me give you some examples from chapter 16 of this tension, this conflict that goes on in Abraham and Sarah's heart. Come to chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. In that culture, not only would that have caused great distress for a wife, but shame as well. If you couldn't give birth, there was something deemed to be wrong with you. It wasn't God's blessing upon you. And this led Sarah to Sarai to be angry, verse 2 of chapter 16. The Lord has kept me from having children. Now, ironically, she's not wrong. The Lord has kept her, but only kept her so far because we're going to see what happens further down the line. But she thinks she's been permanently kept from having children in a sense that God has denied something good. And so what does Sarai do, verse 2 of chapter 16? She seeks to take matters into her own hands to, humanly speaking, try to fulfill the promise that God has made. So she says to her husband, Abraham, go and sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. Here's the significant bit. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Rather than relying on the promises of God and the character of God to deliver those promises, here Sarai takes into her own hands God's promises and seeks to build and fulfill them herself. And then sadly in chapter 16 verse 2 we also read that Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. Here's a, a good example of two people who at this moment were not being guided by faith. But instead were being guided by pride. Now just pause for a moment and consider Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind, a well known passage when Satan came and caused Eve to doubt the word of God, we see that Eve did indeed doubt the word of God, feeling that maybe God was withholding something good from her. So she failed to trust God. But significantly too, what happened when Eve went to Adam with the forbidden fruit and said, eat some of this? 
Adam should have said in that moment, no, and corrected his wife Eve. God told us not to. But in that moment too, he failed to doubt the promises of God. And just as Eve doubted and Adam failed to correct, isn't that exactly what goes on in this story? Sarah doubted and Abraham failed to correct her. And just as you see a whole plethora of fractured relationships in Genesis chapter 3, relationships broken with each other and with God, don't you see exactly the same fractured relationships happening here in Genesis 16? Hagar, the maidservant, runs away because she's poorly treated by Sarai. Abraham and Sarai start arguing. And significantly later, she gives birth to Ishmael. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And so at one level they think that the promise has been fulfilled and yet we're told really clearly that Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Do you see there in verse 12? The the writer of Genesis is making it really clear that there's hostility here. Hostility between Ishmael and other people and hostility between other people and Ishmael. And this will be passed down through the generations. Now this is really important It's not that I can positively trust in God and when I choose not to trust in God, it's neutral. There's no consequences. What we're seeing on view here is that I can positively trust God, which leads to blessing. Or I can trust myself, pride, and fail to trust God. And it leads to fractured relationships. So if you bring this up to speed to use the New Testament language that the Apostle Paul uses of not grieving the Holy Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit. It's talking about a life of obedience lived in the power of the Spirit. Of course, we know that there's much brokenness. Many of the trials we face in this world are because we're caught up in a broken, fractured world. But is it not also true that sometimes we can add to our brokenness and we can add to the trials we face through our own behaviour? Think about how much anxiety is created because we don't trust in God's daily provision for us. Anxiety can steal our joy. It can undermine our faith. And ultimately it comes, at least in part, from doubting God and striving to determine outcomes ourselves. Why don't you take a moment to consider in your own life, where is that true for you? Where are you most likely to doubt God and strive to determine outcomes yourself? Let's just change tack a little bit for a few moments. Think too about narrative. Narrative in the Bible is a particular genre or type of writing. And significant when you read um, narrative, one of the things that's really important is to consider time. Sometimes writers spend a lot of time focusing in on a particular time period with a lot of detail. Other times it seems that many, many years are sort of skirted through or even almost ignored. But even where there's silence, as one writer has put it, silence still speaks. We have to ask the question, why has there been silence? Maybe it's been a period where God has been preparing someone, shaping them, forcing them to wait. And you see this um, this gap, this silence in the narrative between chapters 15 and 16, 15 being the chapter about promises that we looked at last week. And there's this long wait that leads Sarai to saying the Lord has kept me from having children. She becomes bitter. But you notice, too, there's also a very long wait between chapter 16 and chapter 17. 
Perhaps the long wait is a consequence of Abraham and Sarai's disobedience and God wants to teach them a lesson. So he appears to be very silent. And then we read in chapter 17, verse 1, that after a 13 year wait, God speaks. Maybe in that time, God has been causing Abraham to reflect. And I'm sure he's been grappling with the tension of wanting to trust God on the one hand, but doubting on the other. When's God going to do anything? How's he going to fulfill his promise? Well, we see that as we continue to journey through this chapter. Come to chapter 17, verse 2. After 13 years of silence, what's the very first thing that God says when he speaks to Abraham? I will confirm my covenant. And I'm sure if you were Abraham, you would be saying back to God, yeah, right. You've made promises, you haven't fulfilled them. You have reaffirmed promises, you haven't fulfilled them. You've now been silent for 13 years and you're saying, I will confirm my covenant. And then it seems like God is almost rubbing salt in the wound because the next thing he says is, I will greatly increase your numbers. And Abraham's probably thinking, that's a kind of sick joke. It's not happening, God. It's not happening. But this is why I want us to go back to the very beginning where I started. People in Nigeria making great promises of being able to heal, but never delivering. Is it the same with God? We have to consider who God is. What sort of God is the God who's made a promise to Abraham? Have a look at chapter 17, verses 2 to 8, and they're on the screen. Don't need to read it, but just notice what I've highlighted in yellow. What sort of God are we talking about? We're talking about a God who has declared time and time again, I will. Will gives a certainty. I tells us who will do it. I will, I will, I will. That's the sort of God that we're talking about. And what sort of covenant is he making or has made with Abraham? Look at verse 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. It's not a temporary covenant. It's not a promise that he can deliver on for a time, but runs out of resource. It's an everlasting covenant. And what sort of relationship does the covenant God have with the covenant people? Look at the end of verse 8. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. So when Abraham is wrestling with God, saying, yeah, right, you're going to fulfill your promises. It's some sort of sick joke that I'm going to be the father of many nations. When you're wrestling with maybe that doubt, God not answering your prayer, struggling to trust in the promises of God, ask yourself this. Do I trust in a God who's like the false doctors in Nigeria who overpromise and underdeliver? Or do I trust in the God of the Bible, the God who makes promises? A God who always keeps his promise and the God who has relationship with his people. That's really significant. If you can keep your finger in Genesis, could you please flick to the book of Jude? It's the last, second last book of the Bible, the penultimate book, just before Revelation. I want to read to you verses 24 to 25. They're often words that are spoken at the end of a service, a sort of doxology, um, something to lift our spirits. And I think with good reason, but let me read these words. As you think about God's character, the promises he makes, listen to these words, and they should encourage you. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now 
and forevermore. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from falling. The God who made a promise to Abraham, and we're going to see in a minute, fulfilled that promise. It's the same God who's alive and working in this church today and working in your heart and in my heart. He made a promise to Abraham and he delivered. And we read here, he's the God who makes promises to us and will deliver. Because to him who is able to keep you from falling, he promises to deliver us one day. Now that's a sort of pretty extended introduction to try and help us to understand the character of God and the promises he makes. But God in chapter 17 wants to mark this covenant. Rather like in chapter 15 we saw last week, and Nathan helpfully helps us understand that in, in ancient times they didn't write out an agreement, they acted it out. It was a visual representation. In chapter 17 we continue, and God wants to mark his covenant. How does he do it? Well, first of all, he changes Abraham's name. Abraham means exalted father. He changes his name at this point to Abraham. That means father of many. Perhaps changing an emphasis from Abraham being the chosen person through whom the promise would come to Abraham, the father of many. What would Abraham do? He would be the father of many. And you notice verse five is in the past tense. I have made you a father of many nations. Often in Hebrew language, things are stated in the past tense. They've happened even before they've happened. And it's a sort of way of saying, because God has declared it will happen, I might as well say it's already happened, even though it hasn't yet happened, because of the certainty that it will happen. I have made you a father of many nations. Yes, he's the father, but the nations haven't come yet, because he hasn't yet had the son through whom they will come. And to mark this particular covenant, look what God says to Abraham in chapter 17, 10 to 11. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between you and me. And notice the significance of this particular sign. It's a covenant in the flesh to be an everlasting covenant. Now there's all sorts of speculation with scholars as to why circumcision. I can think of some really practical reasons. Why did God not cut the hand off? Well, obviously, there's a reason. Perhaps, though, this is significant. Perhaps when a man and woman woman came together in sexual union, and because there had been circumcision, there was something visible that could be seen, it was more than just a man and woman coming together to produce their offspring. Every one of their offspring would be a fulfillment of this promise. So perhaps this circumcision, at least in part, was meant to be a visual reminder of the promise that God had made. There are lots of other reasons. There's health reasons and other reasons. But I'm sure that would be one of the reasons. You see, rather like under the new covenant in the New Testament, baptism is an outward sign of something that's gone on in the heart. So in the Old Testament, circumcision was an outward sign of something that gone on in the heart. So God makes this promise to Abraham. It doesn't seem to deliver on it. Abraham doubts. God then reaffirms the promise. Abraham continues to doubt. God then gives Abraham this visible sign as a reminder. Guess what Abraham continues to do? Doubt. Come to verse 17. Abraham laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? See, Abraham's faced with a situation that, humanly speaking, is impossible. A man of a hundred, a woman of 90, are not going to be giving birth. 
And then in this last sort of ditch exasperation, what does Abraham cry out to God? If only Ishmael might live under my blessing. In other words, God, here's a son I can physically see. Yes, he may not be your promise, but could you just make him the son of your promise? Then maybe I can trust. He's trying to take matters into his own hands. So what you've got here is a picture of unbelief and pride that leads to not trusting in God and taking matters into own hands. And yet faith, belief, says I will trust God and I'll surrender my own desire to take matters into my own hands. Now think about that for your own life, because I asked you the question earlier, where in your life do you doubt God and strive to determine outcomes yourself? Because we see in Abraham and Sarah, though they're trusting, though they do trust ultimately in the promises of God, they continue to doubt And it's a symptom of unbelief and pride because they're not prepared to trust the promises of God. They want to control the situation themselves. Lord, just let Ishmael be the son of the promise. I can see him and then maybe this promise will come true. So as we try and drive this to a close, let me ask you this question. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you? And I suspect most here would answer exactly the same way that I would. Yes. But, is that your experience? I do trust the promises of God. I do trust the character of God. But, if I'm honest, in my life I doubt all the time. I doubt your faithfulness. I doubt you're going to answer my prayers. I doubt you're going to change the situation. Let me give you three little practical ways or examples of where I think often we doubt God. I think often we doubt God when circumstances in front of us seem impossible. It might be Monday morning and you get into the office and you're just swamped. Piles of paper, tons of emails, an unhelpful boss who's piling too much pressure on you, incapable people working with you or under you. It just seems impossible. How will I get through the day? And yet just a few moments later, maybe you started the day by reading your Bible and you, you heard a promise of God. But straight away, that's been forgotten because we're just rushing into the day and it just seems impossible. It's my experience frequently and I'm sure it could be yours. Could be the exams looming. It's just impossible. Too much revision, not enough time. God promises he would keep in perfect peace those who trust in him and whose minds are steadfast. But throw it out the window because right now it's just easier to go along with all my peers at school who are just getting worried about looming pressure of exams. It's impossible. I'll fail because everyone's going to fail because we're all going to fail. It's what we feel. Maybe it's the hard-heartedness in a relationship. You're grappling with a relationship, someone in your family, a friend, a colleague, and, and they just don't seem to be changing. And you think, Lord, this situation is impossible. And it's wearing me down, and therefore I doubt God. What's your impossible that's causing you to doubt God, I wonder? Second place we often doubt God is when we cannot see what is ahead. You're trying to witness to someone. And they just never seem to respond. I get disheartened with that. And when I do, I go to my filing cabinet in my study and I get out the testimonies of people who've been baptized in this church and I read one. And I think about some of those people, in fact, all of them. And I knew that there will be some time, perhaps even in my own prayers, where I doubted they'd ever come to faith. And I read their story where they are testifying to what God has done. It encourages me to keep going. But sometimes when you can't see what's ahead, you might want to get discouraged. I doubt God because I have no certainty over my future. Maybe it's physically, physical provision. I just doubt God for the future. Will I have enough materially? 
These things are relative. We've seen pictures of Nigeria. They perhaps have people who often should be asking those questions. But it's still a legitimate concern, concern that many here would have. Perhaps there's a reason why God calls us to pray for our daily bread. He wants us to trust him today and not worry about tomorrow. Maybe it's parenting. You've got this deep concern for a child. And maybe you'd be saying, Lord, if you can just give me certainty it's all going to work out okay with my child, then I'll keep trusting you through the pain. But just give me that guarantee. But God's saying, trust me. See, we doubt all the time when we cannot see what is ahead. And the third place we doubt, and it's linked, I think we often doubt when his timing is different to ours. Uh, For me, and I've said this before from the pulpit not too long ago, the single hardest thing in my life as a Christian is unanswered prayer. I'm 33. Some here are 66. Marjorie Chapel, who's part of this church but not physically here, is 99. So most of you have done more life than me, and I grapple with unanswered prayer, which means many of you will grapple even more than me, perhaps. Unanswered prayer is painful, and yet this is what I'm learning increasingly, as God often doesn't seem to answer my prayers. Sometimes I think God is saying no, when he's actually teaching me, wait. We need to trust God. Sometimes we're in a situation which so overwhelms us in life, and all we long for is for a solution to relieve us from the pain. But God in his wisdom is actually saying, I want to meet you in your pain and share my grace with you. And right now, God's ultimate end is not to take away the pain, but to meet us in it and encourage us in it. These are hard truths to grapple with. But what's the common denominator with all those three doubts? I doubt what's impossible. I doubt what I cannot see. And I doubt where God's timing is different to me. The common denominator is I am not in control. And when I'm not in control, I'm tempted to doubt. But here's the truth. God is in control. And there's nothing that's impossible to God. There's nothing that God cannot see. And God's timing is always perfect. And that's why, friends, we need to cling to him. So as I close, I really want this morning to be a big encouragement to us as people of faith who are therefore, by nature, doubters. How does God meet us in our unbelief, particularly when we keep unbelieving, when we keep doubting, when we continue to be prayerless? How does God respond? Can you just jump forward to chapter 21? I love this. Look at how chapter 21 starts. Verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. When you doubt God, he doesn't beat you with a big stick. He doesn't say, well, you're useless. I'll use someone of faith. What does he do when you doubt and when I doubt? Like Sarah... The Lord is gracious to us. And read on in that verse. It's really significant. Don't read it too quickly. The Lord was gracious to Sarah. How? As he had said. And read on a bit further. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. See, Sarah and Abraham were faced with an impossible situation. They couldn't see what was ahead. God's timing is very different to them. But you read that in God's timing, that which they could not see, God saw. And he did the impossible because chapter 21, Sarah gives birth to a child. Have a look at verse 22, uh, verse 2. Sarah became pregnant. If you cast your mind back to chapter 17, verse 17, what has Sarah said mockingly? I'm 90 years old. I'll never give birth. But in God's timing, 
because he could see ahead, he did the impossible. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And I love this, at the very time God had promised. So friends, I want to encourage you. When you're faced with a situation in life that seems impossible, when you cannot see the future, which will be every day, and when you're grappling with God in prayer because his timing is different to yours, come back to the story of Abraham and Sarah because they doubted and God encouraged them. They doubted and God encouraged them. They doubted and mocked and God met them in his grace and said, keep going because I'm always faithful to my promises. We're going to come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as we do that, we think about Christ. And isn't Christ the fulfillment of every promise that God has made? And isn't Christ the very one that we read of in Jude chapter, uh, Jude verses 24 and 25? So as I conclude the sermon, let's come to the Lord's table together. I want to take a moment of quiet and I'm going to read verse 24 and it gives you a chance to quietly reflect in your own heart and I'd love us to pray in, in quiet if you feel able a prayer of repentance coming back to God for the times in our lives where we doubt God so as you come to God in confession in the quietness of your heart hear these words about God who keeps you to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy it's that God who can keep us from falling who we doubt all the time so let's come before God in quiet prayer and let's say sorry for the times we struggle to trust his promises